Welcome to the City Church Evansville podcast, and thank you for joining us. My name is Sean Little, and I'm the community and teaching pastor here at City. I had the pleasure to preach the sermon you're about to hear, which is the first in a new mini-series entitled, A Foolish Father. In this podcast, we'll consider one of Jesus' most well-known parables. A parable is a word picture used to clarify something complex. And while you may be familiar with this parable, I think you'll be surprised, startled even, by the clarity that Jesus is seeking to provide. Well, many of you know that I recently became a father. Aaron, my incredible and strong, strong wife, uh, delivered our daughter at home last September. We na- Yeah, all right. <laughs> Love Ember. Uh, we named our daughter Ember Scott Little, and really she changed my life the day that she was born, and she's continued to do so each day for the past five months. My outlook, my goals and ambitions, my definition of uh, success, and what is worthy of my time and my life. Probably is going to change my definition of success, or sex. I don't want to deal with that yet, so (laughs) moving on. Oh, the magic of public speaking. So, which, for those of you who are parents, uh, you tell me all of that is very normal. And you've told me that over the past five months. See, parents love giving advice about parenting, especially to first-time parents. We've benefited immensely from the perspective and the wisdom uh, that we picked up. Here are just a few short parenting quotes that have been shared with me uh, over the past few months. Here's the first one. Before I got married, I had six theories about bringing up children. Now, I have six children and no theories. Children are unpredictable. You never know what inconsistency they're going to catch you in. Next. Don't worry that children never listen to you. Worry that they're always watching you. Worry. There seems to be a great deal of worry when it comes to parenting. Worry about the wrong uh, decision. Making the wrong decision. There are a million of them. How? And where to educate, how, and how much to save discipline and diet, daycare and development, safety, security, and success. And also sex. (laughs) And all the worry is toxic, according to Christine Barnes, mother of four and author of the Paranoid Parents Guide. According to her research, parents fixate on rare events like kidnapping, school snipers, and terrorist attacks, whereas the stats say that most kids get hurt in car accidents and by people that they know. So what to do about all of the worry? Her advice is simple. Helmets and seatbelts. Again, according to her research, making kids wear protective gear and buckle up cuts their chances of death by 90% and serious injury by 78%. She said... And I want you to catch this, put it up on the screen. We're fooling ourselves to think that all this worry is actually love. Because it isn't. 
So what's all this parental worry actually about? I think at the heart of it, parents are worried about themselves. In other words, fear of failure, anxiety about being a bad parent, being perceived as a moronic mom or a dumb dad. So if worry is not a demonstration of parental love, then what is? That's exactly what we're going to see today. And I assume that if you were to hear this parental approach through the gossip of your friends or through a viral article, you would think that this dad was an idiot, completely disqualified from being a parent. But his perceived foolishness is exactly what his child needed. And I would say that foolishness is exactly what all of us need as well. Turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, for the first sermon in a mini-series entitled, A Foolish Father. We'll start at verse 11, uh, where the first two words are, Jesus continued, but for the sake of a little bit of context, Jesus just told two parables. Parables are word pictures, they're elongated metaphors and similes, they're a common take on a complex truth. So what we're going to see in this parable, is a common take on a complex truth. The first parable that Jesus told was about one lost sheep. You may be familiar with it. The second parable that Jesus told is about one lost coin. And the idea behind each of them is that the lost object is valuable. Now back at verse 11. You guys read with me. It's up on your screen in your Bible on the app. Verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up, went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. We'll stop there and continue with the rest of the parable, the word picture, next week. Now, I'm sure that many of you are familiar with this parable. And you've probably heard it described in a specific way. The parable of, guys, wait a second. You tell me what the parable has been considered on the count of three. The parable of one, two, three. 
guys are sharp this morning. Cooking with greets. While I understand the emphasis, I think it's placed on the wrong person. I think the emphasis needs to be on the father. And again, it's my assessment that if you were to hear this story in the tabloids or catch it through gossip, as opposed to reading it in your Bible at church, you would think that this father is a fool. Why would he give in to the demand of his son? Why would he accept his return so easily? Where is the well-deserved distance of the dad and discipline of the son? What parent hearing this is willing to adopt this strategy today? Maybe the better question is, who of you who have parents wish this had been part of their strategy? We'll consider the father in a bit, but the first, uh, let's deal with the younger son. It is worth noting the preliminary fact of the matter, which is the younger son is a son, a child to his father. There's something about this that I could never have grasped even just six months ago before I met my daughter. I could read it. I could hear it. I could even place myself familiarly into the shoes of the younger son, but I couldn't place myself as the father. And every parent understands this implicitly, regardless of where the parable goes, regardless of where the son goes in the parable, it's all second to his sonship. The younger son is the father's baby boy, and whatever can be said, observed, or theorized about their relationship, they have a relationship. But that relationship was initiated, it was created by the will and activity of the Father. And also, the, as I saw at home just a few months ago, the, the misery and the labor of the mother. I'm not discounting that. Now, I've organized my observations about the younger son with four phrases. Here's the first. You might write this down. His request is bold. Their relationship was one that could bring about such a request. Dad, I want my cut. To which dad didn't balk. He didn't argue. He didn't advise against the potential threats and temptations of fast money not earned through hard work and investment, but through a windfall. Dad gives his youngest son his inheritance. Some commentators say that such a request implied that the son was telling his dad, you're dead to me. I don't care about you. I don't care about us. I want what's mine. I don't want to wait around for it. Give it to me now. Those details can be debated. His intention isn't in the parable. All we have is his request and he gets what he asked for there at the end of verse 12. So his father divided his property between them. Which brings me to my second phrase. His reward is bountiful. His request is bold. His reward is bountiful. Continuing at verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. So, in addition to the full inheritance that he got from his father, he also got together all that he had. He clears out his bedroom, as it were. To the parents of you who have uh, children who have grown up and who have left the home, you can imagine this in a way that I can't. 
If there were injury in his request, there was insult when he cleared out his bedroom. He didn't leave any furniture or even a few spare outfits indicating that he'd be back to visit and reminisce, to make new memories and tend to the relationships that he had with his father and his father's house and everything that it offered and provided and meant. As I read this and thought about it, my mom's house came to me. Uh, I haven't lived there since I was 15 years old. And I'm still a young man, especially compared to lead pastor Jeff Kincaid, but that was 17 years ago. I haven't lived there in 17 years. Still, she reserves one of the three bedrooms in her home for me, her youngest son. The bedroom is important to her. In part, it assures her that even though I'm gone, I'm coming back. It's still part of her life. The home that she lives in, day after day, talks to her, tells her about our relationship. A few years ago, Aaron and I were visiting, and she had redone the bedroom. Again, the one I haven't lived in for 17 years, so it was kind of weird that she redid it. But she added dozens of photos and mementos that she collected over the years. Little art projects and cards, notes and drawing. And she had framed all of them and put them on one wall in the bedroom, organized and intentional. Another time, I made a comment about the sun coming in too early and too strong. We left, we visited again, and she had installed blackout curtains in the bedroom. But the youngest son here got together all he had, cutting himself off from relationship with his father, emptying his room, leaving no trace of himself to be found in his father's house. He erased himself completely and set off for a distant country where he squandered his wealth, his father's wealth, in wild living. Now, there's a sentiment that this wild living is along the lines of like, you know, first century drugs, sex, and rock and roll. And maybe that's the case, but as I studied, I came across a different outlook from G. Campbell Morgan that wild living is translated riotous living, and that riotous simply means without saving. Morgan writes, he took the gifts his father had bestowed on him and spent them in the far country without making provision for leaner days and the ultimate needs of life. And I think that that's an important potential to tease out because many a listener will distance themselves from this younger son saying, he's wild, he's debased, he's outlandish, vile, extreme, and I'm not like that. I mean, I'm not, you hear the voice in your own head? I'm not that bad. Sure, I might indulge from time to time a little too much alcohol, but it helps me unwind. After all, I work so much to take care of the family, but I'm not that bad. Sure, I have a little excessive anger towards my spouse or when I discipline my children, but I told them I need space and time when I get home. I'm not that bad. Sure, maybe more lies than I'd like to admit, but they're white lies. I mean, after all, my wife couldn't handle my relationship with pornography and hearing what I say about the young lady in the office to my work buddies. I'm not that bad. Maybe this wild living is more like riotous living as G. Campbell Morgan suggests, squandering the gifts that you've been given without saving, without reserve, without limitation, life without boundaries. But what are those gifts? Elsewhere in Scripture, and we'll put this up on the screen, uh, we're told that God the Father gives everyone life 
and breath and everything else. All that you have this morning and throughout your whole life has been a gift given to you by your Father in heaven who's the origin of your existence, not only the author of your life, but the source of your sustenance. You dare to relate to the younger son now. Maybe the best of us are not so unlike him after all. His request is bold. His reward is bountiful. His result is barren. That's the third observation. His result is barren. As we see in verse 14, he had spent everything. There was a severe famine. He was in need. He hired himself out to feeding pigs and longed to eat what they were eating. And no one gave him anything. His result is barren. What a stark and striking contrast between the abundance of his father's house and the foreign farmer's field where he found himself. The youngest son is dead broke. He spent everything. And it's fair to say that he had a lot to spend. But everything's gone, which forced him to find this meager opportunity. Meager, not only because of the type of work, feeding pigs, which is a significant and intentional part of the parable that we'll talk about in a second, but meager because while the boy was working, he was starving to death. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that he fed to pigs. He's in poverty, grueling away, working hard, working a lot, but not able to provide for his most basic needs. Jesus' intentionality in mentioning pigs can't be overlooked. He's speaking to Jewish men and women, some who think they're holier than thou and others who are sure that they're not, but most likely all of them are Jewish. And in Jewish culture, pigs were abominable. In Leviticus chapter 11, the Lord told Moses that Israel, the Jews, could neither eat pigs nor touch them, lest they be unclean. And uncleanliness is not only ceremonial, it's positional. So, not only did the younger son's work result from having an estranged relationship with his earthly father, it made him unclean and estranged from his heavenly father. Those are his material realities. That's what's going on the outside physically. What about his immaterial realities. Again, the youngest son had wasted himself. His result was barren. He had exchanged all of his gifts and possessions, assurances, and gotten nothing in return, arguably less than nothing. Again, we're considering the immaterial realities. He had no peace. He had no contentment, no opportunity. He had no place, no family, no future. He had no satisfaction. He had no fulfillment. This begs the question, who of us is really unlike him after all? To the ladies, to those of you who have given away your bodies and your beauty, what have you gotten in return? Are you fulfilled? To the addicts who have given away your health and sanity and your ability to be trusted, Are you satisfied? To the gentlemen who have spent their strength and time not on becoming a healthier, more sensitive, and vulnerable leader and example for your family, but in exchange for success and promotion and bragging rights 
Are you content? How much is enough, Mr. Rockefeller? Just a little bit more. How about your family? How's your wife? How are your children? What would they say about you? Giving ourselves for what? What is ours in return for all that we give? Is it contentment, peace, satisfaction, fulfillment, intimacy, and fellowship with ourselves, with our loved ones, with God, healthy and happy relationships that are vulnerable and accessible and life-giving? Is that what we possess for what we've given? Or when you boil it all down and the inevitable famine of our finite and frail future arrives, will we have wasted our lives, squandered our gifts, and arrived at the last phrase of verse 16, no one gave him anything. His result is barren. You almost feel the weight and the misery and the hopelessness in the room. Thank the Lord Jesus didn't leave us there. There's hope to be found in verse 17. When the youngest son came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Verse 20. So he got up and went back to his father, which leads me to my fourth observation. His resolve is back. And here's where we're introduced to the father. Verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. What's welling up in you? What's in you as you hear that? Can you find yourself in the crowd of people that Jesus is speaking to? Are you one of the sinners or tax collectors being allured by this word picture that Jesus is telling? Or are you one of the Pharisees and the lawyers appalled by the response of the Father? Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Which many of us may relate to. After such an offense, that sure seems reasonable. It seems logical, an appropriate response, but not to the father. He interrupts his youngest son. In fact, he interrupts him from saying what we saw he was going to say, what he was rehearsing to say in verse 19, namely, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. That's what the father interrupts him from saying, this self condemning, status-changing declaration, which would only serve to further alienate the son from his father. His father would have nothing of it. He interrupts his baby boy from continuing the downward spiral into the penance and retribution that he thinks he's deserved and is required of him. And he says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. You see, while the son was eager to become like one of his father's servants, his father was eager to have his son back, reigning in all of his uniquely inherited glory, which he possessed because it was his father's in the first place. His father didn't want to punish him. He wanted to promote him. His father 
didn't want to judge him. He wanted to share his joy with him. He didn't want to condemn him. He wanted to celebrate him. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Can you guys see why I think this parable is mistitled? Has the wrong emphasis? It's not about the son. It's about the father. The father who behaves in a way that any parenting magazine or child raising expert would condemn as foolish. This isn't the way parents respond to their children. Not when their children are so disrespectful, so calculated, so callous, so cold, so irresponsible and embarrassing. This is not the way a parent responds. Well, no, it's not. When the parent operates out of a posture of worry about what others will think or say. Not when the parent operates out of a posture of insecurity where they must be affirmed and respected by their child, submitted to and obeyed. Not when the parent operates out of a posture of self-interest where they need to have their emotional and psychological needs met and fulfilled by the choices and actions, words, and reputation of their child. But this father needed no such thing. He wasn't trying to get something through his son. His son wasn't the means to an end. The child wasn't the source of his contentment or his confidence. This father was full and abundant in and of himself. He was secure and satisfied. He was steadfast. He needed nothing. He only desired to give and to share, to include and to esteem, to make much of his children. Even in the very moment that his child desired to make himself nothing before his father. He had no need for this boy to become a servant. He wanted him to be his son. I don't know if the parents in the room feel the weight of comparison. I know I sure do. Could I ever be a father like this? Could any of us? I think we should strive towards this end. I think that we should build our lives around the reality of who Christ is and what he says. But Jesus isn't giving parenting advice in this parable. He's using a word picture. He's responding to the rebuke, the criticism, and judgment of self-righteous and self-assured Pharisees and lawyers who had earlier said, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. You'll recall before he spoke about one sheep who had been lost. He spoke about one coin that had been lost. And the first part of this third parable was about the younger son who himself got lost and the father who joyfully received him when he was found. One commonality in all three parables that are told back to back is that the sheep, the coin, and the son alike all continue to possess their value even though they're lost. Jesus, using word pictures to help the Pharisees and lawyers understand what Dallas Willard so eloquently wrote, and we'll put this up on the screen, namely, that Jesus gives us a revelation of the preciousness of human beings. He means to reveal the value of persons. Even the persons who are considered less human, the sinners whom Jesus welcomed and ate with. The sinners, the precious and inherently valuable persons who, in a few chapters, Jesus will say, are his express purpose in Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save 
that which was lost, valuable, but lost. And how lost the Pharisees were. How lost the lawyers were. How lost are those who believe that only others are lost. You see, Jesus wanted everyone listening to understand the inherent value of persons, especially lost persons. Sheep doesn't lose its value to a shepherd. A coin doesn't lose its value to its owner. And a son doesn't lose its value to a father. A child doesn't lose its value to a parent, even when they abandon and forsake them. And of course, the father that Jesus had in mind here was God himself, the invisible God whom Jesus is said to be the visible image of. The father who initiates a relationship with all of his children, every man and every woman whose life God is the author and source of. The father who shares the fullness of not only his home and his material, but his immaterial, his namesake, his likeness. The father who waits and watches and looks and longs for the return of his wayward son. And when he catches them from afar on the horizon, he takes off and sprints to embrace him. Father who gives a robe and a ring, sandals and security and a party. But how is this father able to extend such mercy and grace to the youngest son? I mean, it's a sweet story and all, but what about reality, right? The insult, the hurt, the relational separation, the cost, the sin. In closing, I want to draw your attention to two very important details in this parable. The fattened calf and the father's kiss. What did the father do about the reality of what his son had done to him? He accounted for it. As Hebrews 9.22 tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Where is the shedding of blood in this parable? Did you see it? The fattened calf, both slaughtered for the sin of the son and providing the substance at the party that they would all enjoy and consume. You see, Jesus told this parable to men and women who were lost, knowing that he himself was the fattened calf. Not the sick calf, not the young one, the least qualified, the least valuable, but the oldest, most mature, most valuable, most worthwhile, whose blood would be spilled, poured out to account for the sins of sons and daughters who were lost, but now were found, and who would continue to be found. Precious people valued at the very cost of the life of the Son of God, Jesus, this slaughtered calf, this sin sacrifice, who is also the substance of the soon coming celebration of the sons and daughters of God, reconciled to their Father when the new heaven and the new earth and the eternal kingdom come into their fullness. Lastly, I want you to notice that the Father was able to give the kiss of reception to his Son because on the evening before his crucifixion, the Lord Jesus was given another kiss, the kiss of deception, which would lead to his substitutionary death where he died on a cross for you and for me and for the very valuable person who betrayed him with that kiss. The reality of who Jesus is and what he's done in his life, death, and resurrection is the very 
bedrock of God's willingness to receive all who come to him. Those who wander like the younger son, and as we'll see next week, those who appear to be near to him like the older brother, but whose hearts are further from him than the younger son ever wandered. God is willing to receive once in salvation and over and again in intimacy and fellowship with him. Will you come to him? Pray with me. Uh, Father God, I'm thankful that that isn't just some hokey, sweet church story. I'm thankful that that is my story. I'm thankful that that's uh, the story of the church, Lord God. Not that we saw it and found you, but that you saw it and found us. That you reconciled our negative count with the sacrifice of your son that we can look to Jesus and know that our fellowship and our intimacy uh, is guaranteed secure because of what he has accomplished because of that declare to ourselves even as we cave in on ourselves in this moment as we uh, self-loathe and self-condemn we can declare because of what Christ has done that you are a good father to us amen In A Foolish Father, I'm teaching through a very famous parable of Jesus. And while its fame lends to familiarity, I wonder if you've ever considered what this parable means for you and all of humanity. Those who wander, like the younger son, are welcomed by the father, and their sin is accounted for through the death of a fattened calf. Jesus told this parable with his cross in mind, where he, like the fattened calf, would be murdered for the sin of the children of God, even those who wander. If you're in the area, join us next Sunday at 9.15 or 11 a.m. We're located in downtown Evansville, 314 Market Street. Next Sunday, we'll finish this famous parable, turning our attention to the father's other son, the older brother, who, even though he was close in proximity to his father, his heart was further from him than his younger brother ever traveled.